Good morning, afternoon, or evening. Please delete as appropriate. Well, welcome to episode number 376 of the Material Podcast. I'm Andy Anatko. Florence Ion is off again this week. Now, she is recovering from COVID smoothly in a very linear fashion, I assure you, but she had to interrupt her recovery to cover this week's Apple event for Gizmodo. And yeah, that's a whole hoot nanny and a half. Getting all of my coverage together left me with a head full of bees, you know, and, and all I had to do was get my butt from my bed to my desk chair to my streaming studio for a couple of days. That triangle, like it's only 10 yards and I didn't even have to change my clothes if I didn't want to. Flo had to do everything out there in meat space, which is problematic. She, was, she, she had to get between her place and Cupertino in a hotel room and all the while presenting herself as a rational, professional adult on top of all that, including on top of recovering from COVID, on top of being a mother and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that she filed all of her stuff on time for Gizmodo, and now she's completing her recovery this week. We love you, Flo. Uh, everyone's looking forward to your triumphant return next week. This is probably going to be the last week in a long while before when I'll have uh, the floor all to myself. So I thought I'd save the Google news for next time when we can all uh, share this with uh, with Flo on board and have a, a, a real conversation about that stuff. The uh, there, there are big things brewing at Google uh, for weeks and weeks and weeks. We've been getting stories about Sundar Pichai. Not just simply having sort of productivity rallies about how, hey, look, the economy, hey, look, the recession, hey, look, we're going to have to do things differently. But it does seem as though he wants to rewrite this company in a brand new fashion, and he might be willing to do some pretty ambitious stuff to uh, to, to get there. And that's not something that I should talk about as a, as a monologue. I think that's going to be a great conversation, and we can look forward to that next week. Uh, instead, I really do want to talk about the Apple event because it brings to mind a lot of things that worry me about Google. So it's very, very relevant. Oh, and also uh, this week, Apple has done some real jerky things, and they've done some jerky things in the past relative to Google and Android. And I'd like to talk about that stuff too. Honestly, it's it's like I'm going to spend today delivering all of the, I'm not angry, son. I'm just, I guess, disappointed. Like all, all those lectures that I never get to give in daily life. So uh, let's all buckle in for all of that, and we'll start right after the break. Well, as you probably know, the September Apple event is all about the new iPhone and the new Apple Watch, whatever it is. In this case, numbers 14 and 8, if you're keeping track. They're Apple's signature success stories, and every September event feels like, you know, really like like it's another victory lap for two really, really super impressive products. But the the iPhone is experiencing some of the same kind of doldrums as pretty much every other premium smartphone out there. Like, until or unless Apple decides to try folding the bitches, there isn't much they can do to surprise or delight us anymore. Still, the, the new iPhone Pro 14 got me pretty excited. First, because they finally put a 48-megapixel camera sensor in it, and I'm really all about using this thing as, as, as a real camera. That's the, that's the defining feature for me for buying a smartphone, for a lot of people too. But for me, I uh, part of what gives me happiness in being in, outside in the big room is seeing the possibility of a really good picture and taking it. Last night was the big uh, monthly uh, food trucks and face painting and balloons and let's get all the tourists in to uh, in, inculcate the uh, the struggling economy of my historic uh, seaside New England quaint touristy village. And yeah, I, I've, I, I 
used to bring my real camera with me to take pictures there. But really, I'm mostly out there to, <laughs> to, to, to eat pulled pork sandwiches from a truck and get really, really bad for me cupcakes from another truck and get frozen uh, frozen lemonade from another truck and have fun so i don't i don't want to be burdened with that but i still see a lot of great pictures that i want to take and i took a lot of great pictures with my pixel 6 pro uh, like even when i was on my way back home uh, I, I was passing by i saw oh my god there's a beautiful full moon and it's hovering right over the cove and there are the, all these like little like uh, decorative fires that uh, fire pots have been set up and so i uh <laughs> i went back to my place dumped off my my chair and the other stuff that i carried with me uh grabbed my tripod and i could have picked up my real camera because it was actually sitting right there on my sofa but no i just uh the, i just put my uh put a a, a a phone carrier on the tripod and took my pictures that way because i was I was confident that the Pixel 6 Pro would take nice pictures, but I was also kind of curious to see how much fun it would be to try to get pictures with the phone. And also, at that point, I, I had a lot of really high-calorie, high-carb, high-fat food, and I didn't want to be bothered. But yeah, that's that's why a 48-megapixel sensor on the iPhone gets me super, super excited. Um, and it's not just because of a 48-megapixel sensor. Like uh, like Samsung, obviously, they had to have their usual fun at Apple's expense. They put like up a big billboard making sarcastic comments about how late the iPhone is. Oh, oh wow, 40 megapixel sensor. Welcome to welcome to 2017, Apple. Uh, but I think, you know, you and I both know that Samsung, like when it comes to uh, the hardware features of their phones, like they're like the Soviet space program was in the sixties, you know, they, they were great at being first at a lot of stuff, but terrible at turning those firsts into anything meaningful. No kidding. Like the, the Soviets wanted to beat NASA at launching a three man crew into space. Right. So NASA had gone about it by designing and building a three person spacecraft. And the reason why they wanted to build a three person spacecraft was because three was, they determined the number of crew members they needed for a moon landing. It was all for a purpose for something. The Soviets, they just wanted to be first. So all they did was they took their existing two man spacecraft and they kept pulling out safety gear to make room until they could finally squeeze in a third seat. Like I feel bad making fun of a collapsed empire like that, particularly just after their last leader died. But what what the hell, man? <laughs> okay. Okay. But back to the iPhone. The point is that Apple is going to do a hell of a lot more with their 48 megapixel sensor than Samsung will ever do with their 100 megapixel ISO cell sensors. And I think that we all know that. The other super cool thing that Apple put into the new iPhone Pro is just flat out one of the most clever ideas in user interface design ever, I think. It has to do with how they're dealing with the hole in the screen that accommodates the iPhone's front-facing camera and, and all the sensors and stuff. Now, I'm not one of those design wonks who claims that the thickness of a bezel or the, the, shape of, the, the shape of it is a bigger threat to human society than global climate change or, God forbid, the increasing success of Olive Garden restaurants. So I, I really didn't care about all this like crazy, intense debate 
in the rumor mills about about Apple. Oh, are they going to change the unibrow? Like, I don't know, look, I hear that they're going to have like a pill shape and then like a hole. And oh, that's just like that's not what Steve would have done. Like, I I don't care as long as it works, it's fine. Uh, but wow, just take a look at what Apple did. So yes, they did change from this sort of like mono brow sort of uh, uh, hood uh, dipping into the top of the screen to like a horizontal rounded kind of pill shape cutout. But Apple's UI designers, they noticed that the screen achieves such dense darks that black pixels are indistinguishable from the hole in the display. And that presented an opportunity. So God bless them. Apple leaned into the so-called problem. Instead of just you know, shrugging and dealing with it, with it they, they leaned into it by turning that omnipresent black cutout into an actual feature. So it's still a hole cut into the screen, but it is now also a user interface element that they're call, calling the dynamic island. So uh, when there's some kind of an ongoing action uh, that's going on with the phone and its status should be at the top of the screen, like persistently, kind of like as an overlay on anything else you might be doing. Like, let's say you've called for a ride share and you, you'd like to keep an eye on how long it's going to take to get to you, even when you're reading Twitter or doing whatever. The hole at the top of the display, it animates. It appears to expand into a rounded bar and it turns into a container for that information. So yeah, there's still the hole in the display to contend with, but the driver's name is now to the left of the hole and the time to arrival is to the right. And because it's all encased in the same sort of black bar, it doesn't look like it's a hole. It looks like this is just the place where those notifications and persistent things come from. You can tap on that bar to expand the thing out a little bit and reveal more information and controls. Like if you're listening to music, typing on the dynamic island reveals playback controls and stuff like that, progress bars. And it's only been a couple of days. I already know, though, that I'm going to get sick of calling it a dynamic island. Like dynamic island, it sounds like the name of a record label that published disco music in the late 70s or something. But that's that's the only lame thing about this idea. I absolutely love it. I think it's one of the most brilliant things to come up in user interface design in ages. It's also, I have to admit, as it's it's kind of what I hope for, if no, not necessarily completely expect to get from Apple. Like these truly delightful innovations that make the new stuff work even better. Now, on the Apple Watch side, the update to Series 8 uh, presents a lot of the same problems as the iPhone. Like the Apple Watch is probably as feature complete as it's ever going to get in terms of hardware without uh, another new real breakthrough in sensor technology. And yeah, they're working on that everywhere, but it's pretty static as far as the hardware goes right now. Uh, the big announcement, at least for the purposes of a Google podcast, is the new Apple Watch Ultra. This is a beast of a watch designed for extreme sports and professional athletic training and adventuring. It's so rugged that it, appear, it appears to have been made to survive the sort of environmental extremes and physical dangers that, frankly, I spend my life trying to avoid. It's so rugged and so determined to be the adventurer's smartwatch of choice that it can actually be used as a dive computer, which kind of blew me away. So we're, like, we're not talking about a device that's just splash-proof or even a fitness watch that you can wear while swimming and doing a swimming workout. But it's so well put together and so rugged that, and the sensors are so detailed and so well thought out that the wearer can rely on it to keep them safe and alive when they're scuba diving 40 meters below the surface and in danger of running out of air or ascending too quickly or all that kind of stuff. That, that is some serious game there. 
Apple definitely made the Ultra to compete with similar super intense adventure watches from from Garmin and the, and the like. But I think it'll play an even bigger role as sort of the Apple Watch version of the Omega Speedmaster, if you can imagine that. And what I mean by that is that, like, how many people who wear that $6,000 Speedmaster actually use, like, all the buttons and all the chronograph features? I think most people buy them because they appreciate the style and the engineering. And they also, they, they kind of like showing off having that chunky watch on their wrist that says, hey, look, I've got money and class and stuff and junk. Okay, well, okay, Andy, that's very, very nice for Apple. But why am I talking about all of this on a Google podcast? Because it really makes Google's situation in smartphones and smartwatches look downright dire. I, I like my Pixel 6 Pro. Okay, I'm not lying about that. I, I, I absolutely love it. It's a, it was a great purchase for me. It's been a great benefit for me. Like I said, it was fun taking pictures with it last night. And it brings a certain amount of joy each, uh, pretty much every day that I use it. I, it. It was a very, very good purchase for me. So no, I don't regret buying the Pixel Six Pro last year. Not even after seeing the uh, the, the the fourteen, uh, the the iPhone fourteen, and all the cool stuff they can do. But the thing is, like last year, I I owe it to myself to consider all options when I'm upgrading one of my what's it's whatever it is, computer, screen, or tablet, uh, watch, whatever. At that uh, at that time, I was definitely super overdue for a premium smartphone upgrade last year. I had the money all earmarked. It was set aside. It was, as far as I considered, the the, the money was spent. So long, anytime I made the choice, the money was right there. And I seriously considered the iPhone 13 when it was released. Again, the the six came out in October. The iPhone 13, as usual, was announced in the in September. Took a really good look look at it. But I did go with the Pixel 6 Pro because in the end, I considered the two phones to be really very similar. And I'm, I'm obviously I'm simplifying the decision here to save us all some time. Uh, and the same amount of money brought me a much larger phone with more storage if I went with the Pixel. And that's why I went with that. Also, I, I was intrigued by the potential of the Pixel 6, given how good Google is at turning its machine learning research into great features. So I was really intrigued by what they would do when they have their own custom processor that was optimized for machine learning models. Uh, but that was just a bonus. That was like that was speculative. That, that was like tech journalist sort of stuff. Now, frankly, if I had waited another year and if I had been making that choice now, I really think I would have switched to the iPhone 14 Pro. I really do. Why? Well, because material design is lovely, but it's more of a visual improvement than a functional improvement. Like as a consumer, both as a consumer and as someone who does a lot of beard stroking about technology, you know, the Fantasy Island, I'm I'm never going to remember how what to call what to call that feature. So I'm just going to call it Fantasy Island. The <laughs> welcome. <laughs> Much like much like Fantasy Island, when you buy a new phone, you came in with some expect, expectations that you'd be living your dreams, but there's usually a dark twist in Act 3, and sometimes it involves Barbie Benton, and not in a way that you were hoping that it was going to. But I digress. Uh, the Fantasy Island feature of that new phone, uh, the new iPhone, uh, it's utterly delightful. I, 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 I want to be delighted by my technology. And... Beyond that sort of emotional response, I can definitely see how much it's going to improve the overall experience for the iPhone. There's there's so many times when 
there's something that is just ongoing and you want to have something overlaying whatever else that uh, whatever else you're doing uh, uh, rideshare is just one good example and a big part of all of that is that when apple introduces a new user interface element or a new feature third party developers jump right on board with it partly because they're genuinely enthusiastic and creative, partly because Apple <laughs> kind of forces them to. But nonetheless, for the user, the, the, the effect is all the same. You, the, there will be no shortage of third-party apps that support the Fantasy Island feature on the iPhone 14 Pro. Now, I, I think Android's picture-in-picture feature for apps is genius. I loved it when it came out. Uh, and I think it's transformative, like the number of times when I'm on a bus or something and or on a train and I'm, I want to keep an eye on where I am so that I know uh, I, I don't get lost in time. I miss my stop or whatever. Uh, so, yeah, Google Maps can help me do that. I can drop this thing in front of Twitter or whatever. But how many third party Android apps actually use it? It's been around for a few years now. And how often do you see a non Google app use the picture in picture feature? It's Google proposes, uh, humanity disposes. And it also really bums me out that at the same time that Apple is pulling off these victory laps with the iPhone, Google released the September security update for the Pixel devices. Now, along with the security stuff, this new September update was just came out last, uh, just came out this week. I think I just updated like two days ago. It has to fix some bugs that are still affecting Pixel 6 users today, almost a whole year after its release. I'm not talking about subtle things. I'm talking about basic stuff that really make you feel like a little bit of a dope for having bought the thing. Like my my Pixel 6 Pro still is not doing wireless charging, and I don't know why. It's not because it doesn't have wireless charging built in. It's there. It works. It's an advertised feature. Hey, wonderful. But I put it on a a, a Qi charging pad and nothing happens. I don't know why. That is the opposite of a delightful experience. That is the not the Fantasy Island experience. That is the dark ride version of this. And I have to ask myself, like, what is Google's excuse for all this? The Pixel 6 is the first phone sold by Google that was developed completely in-house. So it's an I it's it's a phone that was designed by Google around a CPU developed by Google running Google's OS for third-party software that's built to Google specifications and sold through Google's App Store. So, but it's probably not fair to claim that the I know the that the Pixel Six was born with the same silver spoon in its mouth as the iPhone 13 was, but shouldn't it be much much better than this? And no, the fact that it's the first Google-designed phone isn't much of an excuse either. The Nexus 1 was released 12 years ago, whereas the iPhone 14 14 emphatically appears to benefit from 15 years of accrued experience and lessons learned. The Pixel 6 seems like a freshman offering, you know? And Google wouldn't even have gotten that good a start if they hadn't hired away the head of Motorola's phone business and also bought an entire phone hardware company outright. You know, they, they bought HTC. They basically just cut and pasted HTC's whole design and engineering operation. And, oh, my God, Google Wear or Wear OS, whatever they're calling it now. What on earth can we say about it that doesn't come, out as, doesn't come across as sarcasm? So many jokes, so many mean things to say about it because there's so little good things to say about it. So, yeah, Google gave us a tease about the Pixel Watch, and it's going to be released next month. 
they, uh, they, they announced that there's going to be the hardware event in Brooklyn. Uh, Google's going to be hosting it uh, near their uh, Brooklyn uh, Google store October 6th, I think the date is. Uh, uh, Flo and I will talk about that next month. But so, so that's when we're going to be able to buy a Pixel Watch. But God have mercy on your soul if you actually buy one. Like, why should any consumer put any faith whatsoever into the Pixel Watch? Even speaking as a tech journalist who has good reason to buy it just for research, just for review, just as something to have in my hardware library, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, God, I, I feel like a sucker for even considering buying one. That's not even knowing what the price is. Google Wear, it started out well enough with the, with the Moto 360. It was great. I loved that watch. And it helped that Apple initially didn't really know what it was doing with the Apple Watch. It took them a while to find the car keys. They actually thought that a $12,000 solid gold piece of guaranteed future e-waste was a promising direction for their new product. But uh, that's that was a while ago. It's eight years later. Apple has today made a watch that might be on the wrist of the next American to walk on the moon. Meanwhile, Wear OS watches don't appear to be much more capable than a good fitness watch that costs a lot less. And the Pixel Watch, from what we've seen so far, it doesn't seem like it's going to move the needle much, if at all. Then on top of all that, you have the really reasonable expectation that it's going to have some major bugs, and those bugs are going to take months to sort out. It's, it's worse than a Pixel product. It's a first-generation Pixel product, you know? It's... It's frustrating to me that these worries, that they're they're just so damn reasonable. Google keeps repeating the same mistakes, and not just with hardware. We keep making fun of how many times Google has changed their messaging software goals, and that they seem to have so many overlapping messaging apps. You don't know which one is which, or which one is appropriate for any situation, or which one you should throw your uh, th- throw your commitment behind. Well, let's take a look at Google wearables. It's the same thing. Like in a month's time, there is going to be one, a Google branded Pixel Watch, two, Samsung watches developed in really close partnership with Google, you know, with the Google Assistant and everything. It's similar to how Motorola developed the, the Moto 360 hand in hand with Google at the time. And Google also owns Fitbit. At the time when they announced the, the the purchase two years ago, it seemed as though Google was repeating what they'd done with HTC with their phone business by like admitting that I've hit rock bottom. I'm giving myself over to a higher power, namely in Google's case. I'm, we're giving ourselves over to a company that seems to know what it's doing when it comes to designing this kind of hardware. And I expected that the Fitbit software would go away, like at minimum. That's the first change that you'd put money on that there's no longer going to be a Fitbit app, just like Google did away with Nest's app when they bought Nest. Uh, and just Fitbit uh, fitness watches would be integrated as part of Google Fit. And that's obvious, but no, there's the Google Fit app on my phone and there's the Fitbit app on my phone, which I still have to pay extra money to get like the Apple Watch cool analysis features. So I've got two apps and zero common sense as far as I can see when it comes to these smartwatches. So that's where I am today, after several days of thinking about and writing about and talking about the new Apple hardware. I'm left wondering if Google will ever really find its feet when it comes to designing phones and watches. I know that a lot of the scrutiny, it's not really fair. Apple was founded as a hardware company. To the two hippies in the garage, they weren't making software. They were actually trying to build a computer. They rely on hardware for most of their revenue. 
Steve Jobs' hand-picked successor to run the company is Apple's former chief operations officer. Tim Cook spent his entire career both inside and outside of Apple figuring out how to take ideas on a whiteboard and turn them into actual shipping products full of individual parts that each needed to be sourced and perfected and shipped and assembled. Hardware is just part of Apple's foundational culture. It's part of their DNA. It's not something that they can remove from the way that they think every step of the way. Google's formative foundational culture is all about services. And it's worth mentioning that Apple's, to be fair, they've, Apple has had as hard a time learning the services business as Google is having today learning the hardware business. Nonetheless, I can't help but wish that Google Pixel phones were just plain better and more reliable. It's a $1,000 phone. It should be more reliable than this. It should not be a year later, and I'm still waiting to get basic out-of-the-box features working perfectly. And I wish I could have any expectations whatsoever of the Pixel Watch. I don't. You see, one of the parts of my job that helps bring my thoughts into focus about any given thing is the fact that my readers, my listeners, God help them. I realize I'm saying God help you, but you know, you've been listening to this podcast for 376 episodes. You know what you're getting from me by now. I'm I'm worried about the people who are tuning into Boston NPR for the first time and hearing, well, he's this, this this person has a lush, rich baritone. The other hosts of the show seem to be impressed with what they're saying. I'm going to believe the things that he's say, saying. I'm going to take that as really, really good advice. And so I, I worry about like someone who might buy a Pixel 6 based in part on the fact that I said that, hey, I've got one. I like mine. I have a lot of fun with it. I really enjoy it. I don't regret the purchase. Like, what do I tell them when they come back with stories about broken Wi-Fi? I feel feel like a jerk i feel like i have to keep my enthusiasm for my phone under a certain amount of cautious restraint and i wish i didn't have to i wish i could be as enthusiastic about the the pixel 6 as i was talking about uh, the the iphone 14 and the iphone 14 pro yes i was couching that in terms of hey i've, I've only seen a demo but having seen the track record of the iphone having uh, being able to understand what these changes mean in context wow this seems like a really really good thing i'm really really excited about it and I'm excited about stuff that I see Google doing and Google releasing, but when it comes to hardware, I have to be really careful to make sure that I'm not letting my enthusiasm overstate reality. So yeah, I'll definitely be talking about the pixel watch on NPR next month after the event, but I know that I have to also warn people that buying a series one pixel watch is going to be like, yeah, (laughs) like volunteering to be the third crewman on one of those Soviet space flights that I talked about before like the one where they removed all the safety equipment to make room for that third chair. If you buy a Pixel 1 watch, expect adventure <laughs> at minimum uh, and accept the possibility of a state funeral at worst. Okay, let's take a break. There was some news in the Cold War between Apple and Android, speaking of the Soviets, and I do have a lot to say about that, and that's coming after this. Well, Apple grabbed some headlines this week that weren't related to the new iPhones and Apple Watches. So the the Verge's Neelai Patel interviewed Tim Cook on stage at the Code Conference this week. During the Q&A, an audience member who works for Vox Media asked him if Apple planned to support RCS messaging in the iPhone's Messages app. You'll remember that RCS is a protocol that enhances uh, standard carrier-based SMS messaging with modern features like encryption, group chats, notifications, attaching high-quality video and image files. It, It makes up for the gap that appears when iPhone users message with Android users. 
It's not Google's proprietary standard, though for sure they had a big hand in developing it and lots of good reasons why they wanted to develop it and why they were promoting it worldwide for a couple of years. RCS finally became what you might call a real thing recently when Google convinced all U.S. carriers to adopt RCS on their network and also to kind of drop all these like mishmashes of carrier-based messaging apps and embrace the Google Messages app as the stock Google Messages app on all of their devices. But Apple isn't supporting RCS and messages and they don't seem interested in ever, 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 ever doing so. Now, okay, back to the conference. Tim's response to that audience member was, and I'm quoting here, I don't hear our users asking that we put a lot of energy in on that at this point. I would love to convert you to an iPhone. But the uh, Vox Media uh, person persisted, saying that, hey, look, my my mother can't see uh, the videos that he sends her. Uh, and uh, Tim replied, well, buy your mom an iPhone. Okay, I, I'm I'm sure that Tim meant that as a joke. But humor like that, it really lands differently when it's Apple joking that if someone's problem is locked in with Apple's ecosystem, the solution is to get your closest family members also locked in the same jail cell with you. I'm I'm saying that there's a certain let them eat cake scent about this one. I I can tell you I'm I'm definitely well within my I just don't give a damn anymore years as a journalist and I know this because when I read about this exchange I knew exactly how I would have reacted if I had been doing the interview no 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 complaints about how Nile uh, uh, handled it but I could just <laughs> immediately transported myself to the alternate reality in which I was up on stage there I'm I'm putting on a smile I'm turning to Tim and saying. Well, Tim, I, I don't think you heard your users asking y'all for a $12,000 solid gold gadget watch either. Or did they ask you for uh, did they ask you for that MacBook keyboard design that was so flat that it was practically unusable? I don't think so, but for some reason you gave them those things anyway, didn't you? I then continue by pointing out that, Tim, your users, they're probably asking you for the best privacy and convenience that you can give them when they're texting with the world's most popular smartphones. And maybe Apple should let them have this one. I know that RCS, it isn't the done-in-one slam-dunk solution to text messaging that the world desperately needs. But the fact remains that if the iPhone stock messaging app supported RCS, then people could share high-quality photos and video, which they can't do today. And their chats would be more secure than they are now. And while I don't think that so-called, quote, green bubble syndrome, unquote, is the deathly social disease that many claim it to be, I still think there, there's no doubt that it would make group chats more inclusive, wouldn't it? Apple should be supporting RCS. They have a good argument about why they don't just release an iMessage app for Android, which I think is an unrealistic and impractical thing for to demand of Apple. It's, it's a huge undertaking. And though, you know, God knows they have the resources to pull it off, but creating an entire messaging app for a foreign operating system that they don't control themselves, that's a big, big deal. And it would also add the cost of supporting millions or even hundreds of millions of additional users to the iMessage network because, again, they, they have to be able to manage all that traffic. Whether they could or not is, is a good question. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's impractical. Also, there, there's a strong argument to be made that an enhanced text messaging system like RCS, it's kind of like trying to introduce an enhancement to the vinyl records <laughs> systems. Uh, everybody who cares about this has already moved on to Telegram or WeChat or or some other messaging platform. So maybe this is all just sort of unnecessary. 
But Apple's failure to support RCS, it seems petty and churlish, and it goes to prove for a lot of people that their negative impressions about Apple are correct. The impression that Apple talks a good game when it comes to issues like privacy and health and making the world better. But God help you if you if you dare to suggest that they do something that conflicts with their business strategy in any way. You'll find out exactly how committed they really are to this, these lofty things. If Tim wants to continue to preach privacy as a basic human right, he can't make jokes about not enhancing the privacy features of the iPhone's messaging app. We have court testimony, and this is thanks to the Epic Games lawsuit against Apple that turned up a whole bunch of internal Apple uh, communication, that Apple discussed extending iMessage to Android, but eventually shot that idea down because the status quo helped to lock users into the iPhone platform. That's the purpose of keeping iMessage Apple uh, iPhone only. And, you know, health making the world better. Like, okay, so if you're interested in that stuff, what about making Apple Watch more compatible with Android. It's barely compatible right now, practically nil. Uh, but why not actually make it work with Android devices? Why continue to require uh, an iPhone in the path in order to activate the thing in the first place? I This one really frustrates me because I really do honestly believe that Apple is 100% sincere when they talk about health as one of the company's best opportunities to improve lives. Apple should be really proud of the impact that they're having with this product. But that message, it gets complicated when you start to wonder and ask why Android users' lives seemingly aren't worth saving, just the iPhone users' lives. I mean, look, look, look at the video that Apple showed this week during the, uh, during the Apple event, telling the personal stories of people whose lives were, were saved because they were wearing an Apple watch when an emergency struck. If, if they pushed that idea any further, they'd probably have some, rough looking character sidling up to you and complimenting you on how happy and healthy your kids look. And then says in a casual, like menacing way, it'd be a shame if something were to happen to any of them, <laughs> you know, glancing at the glancing at the Fitbit watch that the kids are wearing. Yeah. I mean, clearly they're locking Apple watch, to the iPhone for the same reasons why they lock in iMessage. What other reason could there possibly be? Google, at least when it comes to wearables, they spend most of their energy stepping on rakes. Okay, we <laughs> I spent all of Act One talking about this. They they've just fumbled. I don't want to say they fumbled the ball. Like they are like tackling the person working at the concession concession stand. Like that, it would be, indicate that they know where the playing field is, and they know that the ball is somehow part of this mission that they're on. So Apple, they have a huge opportunity still to seize even more market share for wearables by making Apple Watch work with what is, once again, the most popular smartphone OS on the planet. It's it's baffling because it's it's such a big deal to, to lock these things to, to an iPhone that uh, Apple isn't even willing to let an Apple Watch uh, pair up with an iPad or a MacBook. No, uh, I, I could do that. I've, I have iPads. I love my iPad Pro. I love my MacBook. I would probably buy an Apple Watch if I could activate it with one of these other Apple devices. But no, you have to have an iPhone to activate an Apple Watch. There's no reason to do that. There might have been a reason to do that early on in the device's development when a lot of it was a lot of the Apple Watch were just as a a screen and an input device that uh, interacted with code that was actually running on an iPhone. Now it's almost completely self-contained. Okay, if you could, I I do have a, an Apple Watch in my hardware library. I sometimes do wear it, 
And it works fine as a fitness watch for days and days and days on end, just recharging it. I don't have to have an iPhone in my pocket in order to get a lot of the benefits of having an Apple watch. But no, I still have to own, I still have to make, put my uh, iPhone, uh, I think an iPhone 11 is my, uh, my latest iPhone that I've got in my library. I have to put that back on the charger so I can sync it up, uh, get any updates I need, all that sort of stuff. It just makes no sense. Uh, Google's branding for Android is that things work better when they work together. That's like choose your own hardware and software and services, whichever you want. Android will do its best to accommodate all your stuff. Now, this is just as self-serving as anything that Apple's doing. If Android works with more of your stuff, then Google gets to collect info about more of your life. But at least it's self-serving and it benefits the user. And it isn't a position that makes Google CEO look like a big old hypocrite at the code conference, does it? Speaking of that, there's another thing that annoys me about Apple, or maybe it's just disappointing. Whatever. It's many Apple fans, they praise Apple products because how well they just plain work, how well they all work together, how reliable this stuff is as individual pieces of hardware, and also as systems that work together. That's certainly a fair observation. But these people, they often take it a step too far they make fun of Google and they make fun of Microsoft for not being as good or as smart or care as much about quality and elegance as Apple does. Like these companies just absolutely don't even care. But that mindset overlooks something really important. In many ways, Apple is playing this game on the easy setting. Making a product is hard enough. Even if you also make the OS services and you have a commanding level of control over all the third-party software that's going to run on it. But Apple almost never challenges itself to work well with the outside world. They almost never put a lot of visible effort into making sure that this stuff works well, even with hardware and software and services that they don't have a hand in. Yes, God, yes. Getting an Android phone or Windows PC to work properly, sometimes that's a real clown show. There are some... As I'm looking around my office, there are some violent dents in my walls in the shapes of laptops and phones that can each testify to uh, how nonlinear the process of getting a simple damn thing working on any of these things can be. Okay, so yeah, let's acknowledge that. But a big part of the reason why that's true is because Windows and Android, they're better prepared to deal with totally unpredictable combinations of hardware and software and services, stuff that uh, Google and Microsoft, they can't at all anticipate. They don't know what I'm going to be throwing at it. And so it has to be able to do pretty much anything. And the amount of effort that they have to take to make this interoperability with the with the randomness of life work, it kind of it often really shows up in how well and how much better sometimes the, their products are than Apple's for a lot of people. Look at Google's wireless earbuds. They work great. They work great. And they pair great with any phone, no matter what phone you're using it with, what, uh, whatever, whatever tablet you're using it with, whatever computer you're using it with, uh, including iPhones and, and, and Apple products. Apple AirPods, they work great with the iPhone. And if you try to use them with anything made by everybody else, they're just kind of okay. They're not bad, but they're not really elegant. They're not as frictionless as, as uh, trying to use uh, Sony's AirBuds or Samsung AirBuds or Google AirBuds. I mean, this is, again, they're really good at solving the problems that they want to solve. They're, they're not interested in making a flashy feature of the fact that, hey, our AirPods work, work with anything. So they don't really put that effort into really make that experience really, really good. Also, this is, everybody really needs to keep in mind that 
Apple's dominance in Mindshare and the, how much we talk about Apple products, and certainly their dominance in the financial sector, their financial success, success all of that stuff, it's really out of proportion with Apple's actual installed user base. Worldwide, as of like July of this year, Android's market share is well over twice of what the iPhone's market share is. That's 70% to 29% worldwide. And when you compare macOS market share to Windows, I mean, macOS is so small that it is arguably a niche. It's like a one-eighth, I think, the last time I checked. That means that if you think about it, Google and Microsoft, they are taking on the task of powering phones and PCs for the whole world. Whereas Apple is only doing that for, well, Apple users. Apple, therefore, they, they have a more limited and a more manageable set of problems. They get to pick and choose. They get to pick and choose which markets are most lucrative and which products that are going to make them the most money and which they're best prepared to build and support. They can pick an audience, a, a type of user, a type of buyer that they want to score really great points with and that's going to give them the most money. Apple's strongest actual competition for hardware out there might just be a Mac or phone user's inclination to keep their old Mac and their own iPhone for yet another year. But meanwhile, people and businesses around the world, they need good laptops that don't cost a minimum of $1,000. They need products and configurations and styles that aren't at all mainstream. They, these are the products that Google and Microsoft are creating and supporting, uh, like, a, like in India. Uh, that uh, one of the most surprising and interesting cultural things about technology that I've read about the phone market in India is that uh, almost every phone come, has has an FM radio app built into it. Why? Because everybody loves to wants to listen to the cricket. They want to listen to the to the soccer to the football. And uh, uh, for uh, many of the regions, they they could stream it digitally, but the streams aren't quite so fast, and they're really really expensive. So for that market, you have to have an FM radio. iPhone Apple is not really agile enough to make phones that are suitable for individual places, individual cultures, individual markets. Certainly not to comply with individual countries' uh, requirements for suitness for purpose, for customer service, for warranty, for what kind of cables you pack in. Uh, so uh, Microsoft and Google, they are equipped to do that. They're, they're servicing a million <laughs> different hardware makers that are trying to get computers and phones in the hands of absolutely everybody else. They're, they're not culturally equipped to be reactive to the needs of the masses is what I'm saying. Uh, they're culturally equipped to pursue things that interest them, that, uh, that move them, that motivate them, which is... I don't want to say it makes them a lesser company because that puts me in a position of, you know, uh, all fatherly wisdom and judgment. And that, that's, I don't think I have that kind of responsibility. What I'm saying is that if I'm, if I'm an Olympic judge and I'm trying to give them a numerical score with, that involves technical achievement, difficulty, ambition, uh, expression, Apple will lose points on that part of it. They're, they're, they're doing things that aren't, that don't push the needle that way, not in that way. They aren't de they aren't demonstrating that particular skill in the ability to do things that are super super hard and in the end unmanageable to design. So that's why I'm always wondering about Apple's ability to participate in a truly competitive marketplace. Now, none of the above is a reason to ridicule Apple or to minimize their achievements, which are considerable. I think they're successful because they're smart enough to focus on doing things that they do well and they do profitably 
that they're really motivated and they get themselves excited about, they don't get caught in that ego trap of trying to top the leaderboards and market share or anything like that. What I'm doing here, what I'm saying here is I'm trying to explain why the smugness and superiority of so much of the Apple user base and to, to a lesser extent of Apple itself just annoys the hell out of me. It's, it's unearned and it's unexamined. It comes across to me like a spouse who earns 9% of the household income, who's complaining that the the partner who's responsible for 83% of the household income is always working and never has time to do fun things. And they're always so stressed out and grumpy. There are reasons why. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Look, it's an oversimplification to say that Google and Microsoft can't be fun-loving hippies like Apple because they've got the responsibility of keeping the world's lights on and the rent paid. Uh, But but as a frequently grumpy Android and Windows user, I too wish that they had spent part of their metaphoric youth in ashrams dropping acid, as uh, as Steve Jobs once said about uh, competing executives. It's just that Apple, like Apple is not two hippies in a garage just trying to change the world either. It's a true, it's a $2 trillion company, the second most valuable company in the world following an energy company and just by a hair. But they want you to think they are, which is why what Tim Cook said at the code conference just annoys me so much. And that's a full lid. As CJ used to say on the West Wing at the end of White House press conferences, I, I recognize that as some sort of a drug reference, like a pot reference, but I have no idea. I, uh, everything I know about drugs, I know from Cheech and Chong records that I absolutely was not supposed to be listening to when I was a little kid. So don't go by me on that. I'm sure that you're laughing at me right now. So maybe that's another reason to speed up this wrap up. Well, Flo will almost certainly be back next week. So get ready to celebrate. Please head to flowrights.tech, F-L-O-W-R-I-T-E-S.tech to see all of Flo's latest articles for Gizmodo, including all of her Apple coverage. Congratulations, Flo, for getting all that stuff in under horrible, horrible, terrible, difficult circumstances. And you can find her on Twitter and Instagram at OhThatFlow. As for me, spell my last name correctly to see my Instagram and my Twitter. Uh, And go to WGBHnews.org to hear or watch my regular tech news segments on Boston Public Radio. Uh, The latest one, uh, yes, obviously talking a lot about uh, Apple stuff, but also a couple of nice apps and uh, talk about my brand new charger, which makes it tech deductible. Hooray for me. Uh, As always, you can help support our show and everything on the Relay.fm network by becoming a member. Head on over to Relay.fm slash material to sign up and gain access to special members-only episodes produced by all of Relay's contributors, including us. Well, thanks so much for listening to us this week. We hope you come again next week. Until then, please have a happy and healthy seven days. Bye-bye.